Drastic Talks. I'm with Andrew Bowerbank, who's the chair of the Transformation Initiative. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's a pleasure. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. So you've been all around the place. You've been involved in the industry for a really long time. You know, people can watch your keynotes and, and look you up on the internet. Um, you're a really interesting dude. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Now, because you've been involved in so many different things, and of course, we're going to talk about um, sustainability and what that means and how it relates to commercial real estate and all the good stuff that you're seeing. Yeah. Maybe just take two seconds and tell people, like, what are you up to right now? Other than obviously being at home during COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's a simple question to ask, but never a simple one to answer when you've okay. got a lot of things on the go. I think, uh, you know, it's very interesting because anybody who does know me know I'm very cause-driven. And I, I use that in everything I do. There's, there's a reason for uh, getting up in the morning, and it's around sustainability, around climate change, it's around low-carbon economics. I've been a person who's very much been in the technology side of things. Uh, way back in uh, my... Uh, University days and college days, I kind of came through the system as an industrial designer. So I really enjoyed things like product furniture design, automotive design, things like that. So I've got a really um, uh, creative way to express myself that comes through with business as well. And I think over the years, uh, one thing I've learned from my father, who actually used to be uh, a senior executive in the film industry with 20th Century Fox Film, Orion Pictures, and others, is you've got to kind of watch the trends in the marketplace if you want to make an impact. If you're too early in the market, you're a bit bleeding edge, right? You're not going to make money. People don't quite get what you're saying. But if you are there just at the right time with the leading edge, well, that's the tipping point where there is a return on investment. You recognize the leader in the market, and it's something you just don't let go of, and you ride that until, until you're done. And I think that's really important when it comes to something like sustainability and environmental causes because – a lot of it is very new. A lot of it is very concerning. Uh, we don't have answers. And we have to find the trends that are going to solve these problems. If you look at the United Nations um, and the work that they've been doing, uh, they're making statements they want us to reduce emissions by 80% by 2050. And I spent about four years at the United Nations Environmental Program as a uh, representative. And this is way back in about 2007 to 2012 uh, when I was a CEO at the World Green Building Council. And that was an amazing position to be involved in because it allowed me to really explore international uh, leadership in this space, recognizing, especially now after coming back off of that, that Canada is really about 10, 15 years behind any developments happening over in Europe, as an example, or even yeah. Asia Pacific, right? So you look at the, the statements that the UN is asking for, and especially now with their uh, sustainable development goals, um, Yet you look at the fact that we're also on track to increase our populations to over 9 billion people by 2050. We have 33 mega cities on this planet. That's populations over 10 million per city. We're on track to have 50 mega cities by 2050. So let me interrupt you there because I'm actually yeah. really curious because I did hear that statistic from one of your uh, keynotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really curious, actually, you know, when we think about population growth and urban density and all this kind of stuff, like we're in the middle, I don't even know if it's the middle, we're, we're, we have this COVID pandemic thing going yeah. on yeah. and we're seeing that like spiral and impact, you know, the real estate business, you know, I mean, I'm just looking at occupancy levels, what yeah. people's expectations are. What, what do you think about the whole population growth and, and you, you feel like those numbers that you're talking about in terms of megacities is still on track or do you think? that's going to change. 
Oh no, I, it's it's nonstop, uh, and you can't look at it from a North American standpoint. You have to look at the growth in, in India and China, and you know there are babies being pumped out all over the place. You know we have to figure out how to how to manage all of that. And you know China failed miserably at trying to do the one child family thing, right? And now they're paying for that. Uh, we don't have a that's my problem. We don't have a solution. And if you think of the mathematics with the increase of populations and the size and scale of the energy and materials needed to grow these cities, and yet we need to reduce emissions by 80%, yeah. that's not quite working. And then you look at scary things like, you know, we're actually, the World Economic Forum and the UN has stated that we're actually in a, a state of, uh, of crisis with sand and usable sand for concrete. Yeah. It, it, we don't just use sand for concrete, it's glass, it's material, it's so many things it's used for. So, you know, it's the consumption habits. It's not just energy and it's not a one-stop solution. And so what my, and you know, the original question is what gets me up in the morning and, you know, what am I doing? What am I focusing on? To me, it's looking at a new solution to all of this. It cannot be just energy driven solutions. It cannot be just a new type of building that's green and energy efficient. It can't be just electric vehicles. The solution has to be cross sectors. Yeah. And it has to figure out a way that all sectors go for the same goal. And then how do we collaborate across those sectors? Like yeah. why is insurance company, companies that are being hit by climate change, not talking to uh, architects and engineers and buy, uh, to build uh, these buildings that are more resilient uh, to the impacts of climate change? Yeah. Right? So that's, that's part of my, that's what gets me up in the morning, right? That's what keeps me moving to try to find these kind of solutions. Yeah, it's... Um it's really daunting. I mean, you know, at PwC, uh, I work on a lot of large scale transformations for clients and change is really, really hard. Just yeah. even just like, you know, adopting a new technology enterprise wide. And then you think about how difficult it is to rethink and retrain our behaviors, not only in how we consume energy, but the way we construct it. It's, it's mind bogglingly complicated. Um, but yeah. One of the and yet, we're saying just that innovation has to come, you know, we have to be innovative and we have to look for change. But we tend to, as a, as a species, we push back against that kind of change. And yet we're calling for it. It's another problem. I know. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, <laughs> this was a question for the end, but I'm going to ask you now, what's wrong with us? <laughs> well, if, we, if we could figure that problem out, we would solve American politics and everything else. So, uh, it's you know, yeah, it is. So um, when we talk, it's funny, you mentioned innovation and, you know, there's that uh, old um, adage or aphorism that says, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk about, um, you know, the notion of um, innovation really being very reactive. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an answer to something that we're faced with as opposed to being a bit more proactive. Yeah. Do you feel like that's happening in, in commercial real estate? I mean, you talk about uh, the shortage of sand yeah. and you know, it's just like there's all these cross purposes thing happening. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's real estate, but it's also the construction sector as a whole, the building construction mm -hmm. sector as a whole. And, you know, I spent the past 15, 20 years in, in this, in and out of this sector. And, you know, most recently as the head of uh, sustainability for, for Ellis Dawn, uh, one of Canada's largest uh, construction firms, but also national vice president at WSP, which is the second largest engineering firm in the world. 
And you know, you look at the procurement models, you look at what clients are asking for. Um, we have problems where the construction sector, everybody thinks if you get to the construction leaders like your, your general contractors and your engineers and your architects, you're gonna start solving the problems if you can influence within that. But I don't actually believe that's true because I think these, these companies are reacting to, to what the clients are asking for and they're reacting to policy and directives from government uh, on, on what, is, what is the requirement, like building codes and things like that. Mm-hmm. If you can get building codes to change, and they are changing, you know, they are moving, but then if you can get clients starting to ask for these types of buildings and infrastructure that is carbon reduced, it is energy efficient, all of these things, resource, uh, reduced uh, resource intensity, that, then you're going to get those big companies making a difference. And I think people have to understand where within each sector, whether it's automotive, agri-food, finance, uh, fi- um, insurance, construction, everybody has a specific leader that needs to be addressed. And for the construction sector, it really is the client. What is a client willing to do? And what are they being incentivized to do? But then what are they being strong-armed to do? What are the reg- regulations that are requiring them? So that's where we need to really figure out how to make that impact. And we don't quite have that yet, except for a few really good beacon projects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's that, you know, um, that weird interplay or balance between, um, <clears throat> you know, hold on a second. here. <laughs> we have to edit this part out. I had, <laughs> um, that's really for Luke and I, I know I did. Damn it, man. <laughs> oh, here we go. Okay. So yeah, sorry. Cut in here. <laughs> um, it's, it's really about balancing, you know, that profit, planet, and yeah. people equation. And like the, the incentives are everything's upside down, you know? And it's like, that's kind of why, where I was getting at a little bit with the notion of um, what's going on with COVID and whether or not, do you like think the innovation or sustainability agenda is still for, like front and center? Or do you think people are much more worried about other things like, you know, health and uh, starvation and, you know, getting sick and getting the pandemic under control, I guess in a nutshell is, is COVID putting it on the front burner or the back burner? Do you think? Well, let me, let me answer that this way. I think that sustainability in in all of its iterations, um, we're fortunate that at least the majority of the, the population, the professional population rely on and expect it to be a base, um, that's always there. And there are things that come and go like your COVID and different issues and you have economic downturns and you have any other kind of crisis. But the baseline is seems to be a target of sustainable development and you know, climate change, it's always there. And you, know, you get distracted and you have to solve one problem but then you come back to it and it's gonna be there. So I really believe that as long as we maintain that as a, as a core belief, across our sectors, we're going to be able to start moving forward with that. For me, it's the fact that I really don't think sustainability is properly defined anymore. And even the word doesn't work properly. Yeah. How, and, how, how would you define it? Because I mean, yeah, yeah, for me, yeah. If you look at the term sustainability, believe it or not, that was originally coined back in 1987 through the Brundtland reports. Okay. Now, everything from digital technologies to populations, to new systems, to uh, new technologies as a whole, and even how we live and act uh, within our societies has changed so dramatically since 87. Yeah. In 1987, I think I had a purple mohawk and blue eyeliner and, and dancing at nightclubs, right? There was no cell phones, there was nothing. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was more of the platinum blonde you know, thing, the, the shirt up to here and the pickle biter shoes with the fucking. I remember all the, the 18 hole Doc Martin boots, all of that. <laughs> so, uh, so for me, you look at the way everything has changed, the term sustainability, I'm really pushing right now in the marketplace this idea of sustainability 2.0, where you're about decarbonization, digitization, you're also making sure that you are celebrating the successes of the projects that you're working on and you're innovating. And the, one of those four things that stands out to me more as more important than anything else is the idea of celebrating successes. Because in Canada, we suck at that. Yeah. And what happens is we build a project, we talk about the project as we're building it, and when it's done, it goes quiet. We have to be able to say, there's nothing wrong within a, a trend within a marketplace. If you do something good to say, hey, look at me, look what we did, because that's how other people learn but we tend not to do that very well. And I think the promotion factor around these projects is really going to be important going forward. I worked on, um, when I was at Alice Dodd, I worked on Ontario's first net zero energy institutional building at Mohawk College. That was fantastic. And we ended up publishing a lessons learned report from that. And what was really amazing to me was to recognize the fact that the amount of work it took to get people involved from the trades to the different engineers to uh, even people bringing materials to and from the site, everybody had to get educated on what this new type of building of net zero energy was all about. Otherwise, we were not going to achieve our goals. Right. And so we had to shift the way we went about um, uh, operating and, and developing and building that project. And that's an example of you have to be able to figure out how to tell other people what you went through to accomplish that. Right. And it's not scary thing. It, it takes focus and, and effort, but it's not scary. And the price points are really not out there. And these kind of lessons learned have to hit the marketplace to make a difference. Is, is that a particularly Canadian thing, do you think? Or is yes. that an internet? Yeah, because we're, yeah. I mean, hey, we, look what we did. It was really amazing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't want to come across as... You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you want to get quite uh, as, as pronounced as American bravado, I'll call it. Uh, but there's something to say for that kind of, you know, that kind of showmanship that, that sometimes at the beginning of a trend, you need to stand up loud and proud and say, this is what I'm doing. Uh, and I think that's a missing link that we need to capitalize on. I agree. It's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, yeah. <clears throat> because it's, it's like anything. Hey, look how cool that is. I want that. So you're, man, you're basically manufacturing desire uh, and, you know, you're proving it's, it's a, 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 a case study or whatever, kind of proof, proof of concept. Yeah. And the more people that want it, the more the interest is there, the more price points come down. Yes. And that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for that economies of scale. And we look at, we need to find out what the return on investment is. And that's, that's the other missing link is return that's on investment. Just right? I would ask you that because, and I want to just pivot the question just a little bit. And that is defining the idea of the return itself, because yeah. I think a lot of people, especially when you think about ROI, it's yeah. directly related to the P&L. And um, that may not be the case, or it's not, sorry, it, it, it is the case, but it's not the entire case. Talk okay. a little bit about what ROI really means in sustainability and, and real estate and construction. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it uh, being different to different people in different groups. So return on investment to anybody who's in uh, real estate investments, uh, financing, yeah, it's going to be a financial return on investment that's going to be the driver. But then you look at other companies that, um, 
you know, they might be more focused in, in multimedia and, you know, maybe it is more of the promotional aspect. Like if you get recognized as that leader and you get called on to help out with various things and you know, that's a return on investment as well. What does return on investment look like for education? Is it in bettering the facilities for students so their higher education is improved? Um, you know, there's, everybody's got a different thing. And I think really it's a it's not any one thing either for any company. So even in the finance world and banking, yeah, your your you know your your king ROI is going to be your money, but any bank wants to stand out against its competitors, right? So the bank even wants to have that bit of profile and say, hey, look at the success we've done with our um, our goals towards the UN SDGs, for example, right? So everybody wants to be able to talk about what they're doing and they want to become leaders in that and they want to benefit so that the company keeps to prosper uh, economically. That's just, there's nothing wrong with any of that. So, you know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about, and it's certainly um, prevalent in a lot of industry is this notion of being siloed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I wonder whether or not this, you know, the, the siloed nature of how this is working is really kind of getting in the way of what you might call low carbon economics, you know, this notion of, you know, the economics, the environment, society, everything working together because the agendas don't necessarily line up or the revenue or the, the definitions of ROI don't really line up. Can you talk a little bit about how sure. maybe overcome that? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. The, the, the real issue is the way that we've structured our economies to run. Um, and it really, I think, started uh, with Henry Ford when he first began um, mass production and assembly line for cars because the idea is you want to get one person trained at doing one thing really, really well. And they do it a thousand times and at the end a car rolls off the assembly line. That productivity format demonstrated to the marketplace how effective it is if you allow people to become um, experts at what they do. Okay. The problem is now we've gone too far and you know you have siloing within companies, within divisions, you have siloing within the marketplace and you have siloing globally as well within countries. The, where it really made an impact for me, the, the, the negative of this uh, and the potential negative if we don't figure out how to move beyond that and, and, and collaborate better, is back in about 2012, I worked with the province of Ontario and, and PowerStream, now called Electra, one of the utilities in Ontario, to de devise and develop a, an electric vehicle infrastructure plan. At the time, EVs were just coming onto the marketplace. So people were really nervous at range anxiety. And you had maybe 30 to 100 kilometers with the, with the Prius and that kind of stuff. Yep. So it was really around trying to figure out, as the news, these new cars were coming onto the market, how are we going to create the infrastructure and who needs to be involved? And I realized up until that specific point, a car manufacturer a home builder and a utility have never had to talk before. And yet you're going to plug a car into a building and get energy off of a grid. So unless we figure out how to break that down, that was going to be a real problem. And we ended up hosting this amazing workshop that brought these groups together. And the, the, the light bulbs and the aha moments that happened in that room of discussion of senior executives just blew my mind. And I thought, this is something that really has to take place and it really helped define what I do since that time, since 2012. And I've really been pushing that. I've done the same thing in, in um, urban agriculture and working with the idea of vertical farms and indoor buildings that grow plants indoors. In Canada, that's so important because we obviously we have seasonal growing seasons and we're importing 90% of our food from the U.S. 
If we can figure out a way to grow food indoors, but then the buildings cannot be energy intensive. So how do you make the buildings net zero energy and still grow food? So you've got to have your architects, your engineers, your agricultural specialists, all working together. And that's what I look for, the kind of projects that really are going to tip the marketplace. And it's such an exciting proposition, at least for me, because it's like the opportunities, the ideas, the things that might happen as a result of bringing sort of what we, up until this point, sort of disparate people, disparate yeah. industries can really go, well, how do we not think of that one before? Well, yeah, yeah. we were never <laughs> in the same room together before. We never were thinking about these particular problems. Um, I want to go back to ROI for a second as we think about, because it, 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 the idea of, you know, vertical farming and <clears throat> all of these different components is really super interesting. Yeah. When you think about building owners, you think about these organizations that are responsible for, you know, paving the way uh, at scale for the stuff yeah. that you're talking about. Do you think um, that that's a competitive advantage for potential tenants. Like when we think about the ROI, it's like this is a massive financial undertaking. But on the other side of it, it's like, where would you rather be as a tenant or a whatever in a, in a building that's, please tell me. Yeah, I think it's it, the story and the answer is going to be different depending on the confidence and the effort that a given developer, company, whatever, puts into education and awareness of themselves of what's possible. So what I mean by that is, you know, you've got some great developers out there, Tridel, Minto, and uh, Empire Communities and others, and I don't want to miss any of them out because there's a lot of them now that are really moving towards this green agenda. And, but in the early days when condos and buildings first started looking at the opportunity around green design, you you had these, these companies that really put a lot of time and effort into learning what it meant to develop a green building. And it, it, we figured out that it, the, the increased price point of, say, for example, a LEED Gold certified building wasn't anything new within the building itself. It was really the cost it took to educate the people involved to design and build these, these projects mm -hmm. because it can slow down if you're not educated properly in the time it takes and you've got to get a new supply chain potentially, things like that. But once you have everything lined up and people get it, then it's business as usual. And I think that's where groups like the US and Canada Green Building Councils and others, they're trying to create that tipping point of education in the marketplace and awareness. You know, some of the, many of the projects where, that I've been working on, uh, I've done some of the first LEED certified buildings in the province and even in, in the country. And it's amazing how when you get the engineers and architects working together, they were starting to prove that it was actually cheaper to build these projects once the education factor was in place. And then if it's cheaper and then cheaper to operate, well, there's your return on investment. You've just got to get past that hurdle of education and awareness and confidence in the initiative. And it's amazing how many people push back because they don't understand it. They don't, everybody is so busy, they don't want to take the time to learn it. So they start creating negatives in the marketplace saying, oh, that's not going to work. Or, you know, there's too much involved in that. Or that's too expensive. All these other excuses. But I think we've broken down a lot of those barriers by proving that, but we're still not tipping the market yet. Still only 20% of the real estate market or construction market uh, globally can be classified as any level of green. Everything else is still business as usual construction. So even with something as prolific as lead, we have not made enough of an impact yet to get near that 80% reduction that the UN's asking for. So we've got to make sure the ROI is also about 
telling that story and building that confidence. So everything we're saying so far is starting to line up. You need to celebrate successes so that people that are coming on can find their ROI themselves and how they're going to go and move that forward within their business for economic prosperity. Yeah, it's amazing how like the data is kind of supporting the effort, but you know, at the same time we have change climate change deniers. Yeah. It keeps which, me employed, but it's frustrating at the same time. It makes time. me exa- it makes me exhausted, you know. Like I, I personally drive an EV. Um, had it for three and a half years now. Nice. It, what did you get? I, I got a BMW i3. Oh, nice. And just because it was like kind of quirky and weird. Yeah. Uh, it was the opposite of what I had before, which I won't talk about, but it, it used a lot of gas. And I'm like, this yeah. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But it's amazing to me how people try and convince me and send me articles that, you know, cradle to grave, you know, it's, it's actually worse and blah, blah, blah. It's like, guys, you got to start somewhere. You have to do something to start yeah. this. And um, I find it really kind of, you know, crazy that the, the majority of people just seem to be kind of, they have their blinders on. Yeah. Which well, I mean, let's, can I ask you a question? And I want to, I want to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Let me know, let me know what you think of this. So I think it's, you know, we talked about the idea of market transformation, return on investment, siloing. Mm-hmm. I think the other part that we have to look at is we're not good at adopting systems thinking, yes. right? And what I mean by that is when, when people are challenging you on your EV and life cycle, mm-hmm. the EV, when it's on the road, does not emit emissions, which is good. And the complaint is, well, wait, look what it takes to manufacture this thing. It's more intensive. Yep. But every sector needs to also commit to that level of reductions. And if the manufacturing of that car is not making any changes and all you have is the end product, well, then the system itself has not moved. Agreed. So is that, I mean, I think that's where you should be talking, others should be talking to people that challenge you on saying, but I've done my part as a consumer to buy this vehicle. Yep. And I want it, the more that we can buy them, the more the manufacturing protocol will change. Yep. And then the whole system, it's a daunting thing. It's not just the building. It's the cement, it's the glass, it's, the, it's everything involved. Right? Everything. Well, one of the things I'm going to digress for a second, but one of the things that I really liked about the whole BMW concept is, um, the materials that they use to make the car, the fact that um, the factory where they make them in Germany is uh, sustainable or, and they've done a lot of things around That's right. That's right. kind of closed loop or uh, you know, cycled. They have a whole program on, because the first thing people say, oh, the batteries, lithium, scourge of the earth. And then they go, well, and then when the car needs a new battery, what do you do with the battery? Well, the good news is, is that they take it back and they do tests on it and they recycle it and all that kind of stuff. But we digress. Well, no, no, let me, let me, let's not digress. Let me add to that. You have great companies like Panasonic. You know yep. what they're doing? They're taking these batteries out of the cars. Their efficiencies are down by about 80%. But that's perfect for running um, uh, battery technology for buildings as backup <laughs> generators. So there's repurposing is just as important as recycling. You know, you have to repurpose things. And I think if you look at even, even, even the lithium technology itself, it's same thing in the energy sector, where natural gas right now is a transitional technology from coal to renewables. And everybody says, oh, natural gas is bad as well, but we're not gonna be on natural gas forever. The same thing, we're not gonna be on lithium. There's new technologies, new battery technologies coming out that are gonna replace. We've just gotta use what we have available now to do the best we possible can now so that the next generation or the next decade can grab this new technology, this new material. So you've always got to allow that to be a stepping stone. We're not going to get from A to Z without saying the rest of the alphabet. 
right? Um, you ever heard this expression how, you know, when something doesn't work, it's like, it's like uh, you have a flat tire on your car. And because you have a flat tire on your car, and that's the analogy of like lithium batteries or something that maybe isn't perfect, you go ahead and slash your other three tires. Yeah. Or, or just throw it, throw it out and get a whole new car just because of the one tire. You, you, don't, you don't do that. It's like, okay, well, I'm doing the best I can here. Yeah. Um, you talk a lot about um, education as being kind of one of the, the, the barriers around adoption and scale. Sure. And I was really kind of um, intrigued by your carbon accounting tool. Oh, yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I think it's really interesting, especially around construction. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I was actually kind of blown away that, a, I don't know if it's a lot or most, you tell me, uh, companies, organizations, construction, you know, whether it's PCL or whatever, don't actually really, up until this point, think about all the different components from the trucks idling to... Yeah. You know the how much cement they use it's like it's mind-boggling the, the gap in the data yeah i think you know what's happening right now and again it's much on the other conversation you know you've got to do it one step at a time you know and fine we've been focused right now on what's called operational emissions and operational carbon um because that's something that we can control fairly quickly but again if we talk about supply chain management and life cycle that's daunting because now, you know, we need to figure out what embodied energy and emissions are within a material itself, like cement. And right. what's the impact of going up the stack if you're getting all the cement delivered to a site for, for building a building? And I thought, you know, way back, we started this program uh, through LS Dawn and a bunch of other great companies like uh, Enbridge and WSP and Cisco and Mitsubishi and Cement Association. We were all working together to create this carbon impact initiative as a way to work together to figure out, well, how do we start making this, these changes towards net zero energy or, or emissions? And that was back before any projects in Ontario and even Canada had even been done yet. Right. And one of the things we realized was, yeah, we're not tracking emissions uh, from design through construction. We're only looking at the impact of when that building is, is finished. So for me, we said, well, how do we track that stuff? How do we track those trucks coming and going and all these efforts and people on sites and you know uh, generators running and things like that? And if you're building a hospital, an airport, a large uh, transit system, uh, um, bridges, and all that stuff, that's a lot of activity happening for many years. If you build an airport, that's a four or five year initiative. And if you're not tracking what the impact is of that, then you're losing half the story. And I'm not saying to anybody that, you know, if you track it, we're going to come down and say, oh, you must now reduce. It's, it's just the, knowing the fact that knowledge is power. If you know what the number is, if you know what the emissions are, then collectively we can try and solve that by, you know, picking away at things and slowly bringing that down. So we, we went to um, uh, Ontario Centers for Excellence, uh, NSERC, and uh, Natural Resources Canada, and we got a, a grant for about $2 million dollars and to develop the software system to specifically track emissions during construction. We used the retrofit of the Evergreen Brickworks. Uh, they were targeting carbon neutral for the new event space there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used the whole protocol uh, and, and them as a pilot for that. Very successful. Uh, it was a lot of work to try and figure that out, but we had University of Toronto working directly with us on that. And they had a lot of their PhD students and professors helping, up, helping us with that protocol. So, you know, that was just a pilot at the time, but we've seen now in the marketplace where there's other groups that are coming out with these tools. Uh, there's one group out of uh, Alberta that I'm working with right now called Radical. 
And Radical is doing that specifically as well, looking at a way of tracking emissions as they're reduced. Um, and then also Skanska, uh, one of the biggest construction firms in the world, have a great carbon tool that they're using. So it's good to see that the market is moving in, in this area and supporting that kind of development. Uh, my question was around uh, the education around this. I, I'm sure a lot of people, A, they never thought about tracking it or B, didn't know that you could or yes, it, seems yes. like a, it seems like a lot of trouble or whatever. But I'm imagining now that they're probably factoring this into building costs and ROI and all that kind of stuff. And I'm actually surprised that it's not a bigger thing at scale. Like, I, I just not too sure why. Yeah, I, I, think, I think Canada and, and the US for the moment right now are, are a good 10, 15 years behind Europe and Asia Pacific in this area. So there's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of mandatory requirements over in, in Europe that is, is phenomenal. Like, for example, you might have heard this, but there are cities uh, uh, across Europe that are making it now, you're not allowed to drive internal combustion engines within city limits. Uh, it's just be on the, yeah. the forefront of that. Yeah, you get you find if, if you do. So these are the kind of big scale changes that are, are being required. You have cities that are targeting all new buildings and construction to be net zero energy or emissions by 2030. But we're seeing these pockets of, of leadership change in Canada as well. So, for example, where I think the real leadership is in, in Canada is municipal level. And you have cities like Toronto and Vancouver that are aggressively committing to zero emission city by 2050. Yeah. And, and I was just on the phone actually yesterday with the city of Toronto for this new program that we're proposing. And, you know, they are aggressively looking for ways to make all buildings carbon neutral, not just new builds, but even existing. It's a very big daunting task. I mean, you think about, I mean, Canada, uh, mm-hmm. unlike the rest of the world, doesn't seem to have a great sense of history. I mean, mm-hmm. We'd like to tear down old buildings and stuff. You compare that, you know, go to central London. It's a very different architectural thing. Um, how, how in the world do you go about retrofitting at scale? Like you talk about it's a daunting, it seems impossible to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it depends on the building type and the sector. I mean, obviously if you're looking at the big, large downtown office buildings, We've got great leadership with Oxford Properties, you know, Cadillac Fairview with a lot of the retail spots. You've got Dream Developments. Um, that's just to name a few. And they're really focused on how do they bring the impact of their portfolio down as, as aggressively as possible to meet the City of Toronto's targets. And the City of Toronto already has some amazing um, building requirements. Uh, and you look at the different tiers they've got within their standards. Um, and all these developers already have to try and meet those. And the city have already said that they want the next tier, I think it's tier four, to be a net zero energy or emissions target. And that's by 2030, I think. So that's going to come up really quick. Yeah. So as long as the, the municipal and the governments say, you know, you must do this, the developers have the intellect and the capacity to respond to that as long as you know it's even playing field. Where we're seeing more difficulty is in rental apartment buildings. Actually, no, it's not. Rentals are good, but it's the condos where you sell out the condos to the different tenants and then the developer walks away. And there's no real incentive for that developer to make that project ultra green, for example. But there are a few coming up. Uh, The area that I'm looking at is, and you talked about the teardown thing. I think there's, again, this is the idea that sustainability is not just any one thing. I think we have a problem in, in the big cities in Canada and probably the U.S. as well of affordability of housing. We talk about that a lot. Um, it's heritage. It's, it's maintaining the heritage of the infrastructure that we have. And then it's also trying to strive for these energy efficiency targets. 
So if you look at communities um, in and around the greater Toronto area, I'll, I'll call out Etobicoke, Scarborough, North York, there's a lot of these um, really nice, cute bungalows that were built post-World War II. They're starting to look a little dated, the interiors need to be fitted out again, but what's happening is you're getting uh, small developers and, uh, and construction guys buying these, ripping them down, and putting up these big monster homes. Yep. But the problem is those monster homes are huge energy pigs. They, they take up so much land, they're not attractive to the community, and it separates people. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking is, can we create a real estate investment trust or some kind of investment portfolio that buys up 30 or 40 of these homes at a time, these nice bungalows, but maintain the heritage, retrofit them to be net zero energy, and give in, in ter, uh, you know, finishes on the inside that are attractive, that, but also are ready for things like pandemics. Like why not have a, an at-home office space ready to go? Um, have renewable energy on site. Have naturalized landscaping for stormwater management have uh, uh, gardening uh, pits in the backyard so people can grow their own vegetables. All this has to come back. And I think that is going to be very attractive to people who want to live in these kind of homes that have been redeveloped. Mm -hmm. But the problem now is affordability. You, to buy a house in Toronto, it costs you million plus, plus, plus. How many people have a 20% deposit to buy those homes? Not many. So they're either being renters forever or they end up finding money and doing whatever. And I think the opportunity now is a lease to own program where you develop these homes to net zero energy, you keep the heritage, you keep the curb appeal and, and the community uh, feel, and then you allow someone to come in for a long-term lease with the idea that when they have the money raised, they can buy that house off of us and stay in that house for the long term. And that's what I'm talking to the city of Toronto right now about, is how do we do that? So that, that in a long way that answers your question, but for me, these are the kind of programs that look at these systems and every building type needs to have that kind of portfolio solution. And I think we're getting there, but we have a long way to go. Yeah. Oh, it's exhausting to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not really exhausted, but it's just like mine. Yes. Yeah. Like uh, <laughs> tell me about um, the technology you know, we talk of, I mean, we were talking about uh, George uh, a few minutes ago, but this notion of prop tech, and, and do you think that um, there will be an ability for emerging technology to really impact sustainability and the stuff that you're passionate about? Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, like actual smart intelligence stuff. I'm not talking about IoT necessarily or, you know, automation. I'm talking about intelligence sure yes for sure I, I think but it's also two parts to that I think first of all we have to realize that there's a lot of things that can be done to meet targets with off-the-shelf proven technology now it's right. there we have to rely on that we have to have confidence in that and we have to adopt that but then we allow the new technology new emerging technologies to really start making that next stage impact and it could be at the micro scale of the individual building. And you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm on the board of directors for this uh, company called Control Technologies. And they have an amazing system that monitors real time the performance of a building and also the processes that go on within a building as well to give you an exact uh, feedback on how your property and your assets are performing. But this, this, the, the technology to do that and the dashboard interface, it really is cutting edge stuff. 
right. and you're only going to get a few companies that are going to be able to adopt that at the beginning. And they have great clients like Toyota and Beyond Meat of the U.S. and a bunch of others. But you have to also look at, well, where else can you come in with existing technologies to help companies that don't maybe have a price point to do that yet? And, and I want people to understand that that technology, that current technology, it is there. And everything that I've been doing, the projects that I've been doing, it's not about what new technology it is. It's how do we integrate them into a system that provides that solution right away. Um, but when you look at the emerging technologies, you have companies like Mitsubishi, for example, great uh, new HVAC systems that are out there that are really bringing things down from a carbon standpoint. Um, if you look at the, when you're talking about things like autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, these are going to change the landscape dramatically mm -hmm. over the next decade. Uh, and then you have to look at the Internet of Things and, and the way that these connect to the surroundings and to buildings. Buildings can't stand alone as individual units anymore. They have to integrate with, with the community, with other buildings, with, with vehicles, with the Internet. And I think, you know, we're slowly starting to see those new technologies that are creating that opportunity for that, for that communication across uh, the entire cityscape. It, it totally does. You know, it's funny because as humans, we love shiny objects. <laughs> and we love new things. I mean, I think our, our sort of, you know, consumption uh, culture, yeah. it, 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 not manifest that, but it, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's an emblematic of that. Um, but at the same time, it's like, we like, we don't, we're not at the same pace, I guess, willing to bring these things and connect things at scale and i mean you talk a lot about scale and I, what's what do you really think of stopping it I mean, the technology is there uh, the yeah. business cases are there um we have lobby groups and governments and we have um uh, you know the 2050 um we have sort of targets yeah 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 i think you know i, I answer that with sort of two parts first of all i'm going to comment on, on the first part you said there with the idea of the shiny object and i think you know that's that's what's your, your disruptive technology Right. And as a, as a technology comes to the market that's disruptive for the right reason, we want that. We want that flat screen TV in the basement to watch a football game. And 20 years ago, they cost $10,000 each. You only had a few people in a, in a community that could afford those. But everybody would come over to his house to watch the game. And then as time goes on and, and interest and demand starts picking up, now you go to Best Buy and you get the same TV for under $1,000. Yeah. So that shiny object and that desire for that is actually a good thing for us in the market if we're going to start shifting and changing mindsets and moving towards the technologies. Mm -hmm. So the second part is around the pace at which these things come up. And it's because our economy still work the same way. It's supply demand. You know, supply is not going to be there if demand's not there and demand's not going to know to, to ask for it and, and do that if, if there's no promotion and opportunity around that. So the way we develop is always on this constant pace of change. And for me, I think it's also the fact going to the psychology of us as a species, we are not a species that changes any faster than one generation at a time. Right. You know, you, we just talked earlier and joked around about how we looked in the 80s, right? But remember in the 80s how we used to rebel against our parents? Yes. And we, no one could tell us that they have a better way of doing things. And now we have kids and we tell them, no, this is better. And they go, oh, you don't know anything, you're old. We don't listen and learn other than incrementally within that. So it's that we have to figure out how to get past that mindset of generation only. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is, is we don't, we don't uh, embrace change as effectively as we would think we do and we would like. 
we still always push back against change all the time until it's proven otherwise. So I think we've got to find a balance between those two points that I made and try and figure out this disruptive technology and wanting the shiny object, but then, oh, don't make it too shiny too fast. <laughs> you know, you've got to figure out how to bring that together so that the confidence in that technology and the ability to make that change is really for the better good. And again, going back to the idea that we need to find out what that return on investment is for everybody involved in that process. Yeah, I love the idea of redefining that or really opening up the aperture on <clears throat> what what return on investment means uh, for sure. You know, we talk a lot in, in, in sort of my work sphere, we talk a lot about human-centered design, we talk a lot about design thinking. Um, and I wonder whether or not um, there's a bit of a barrier or a bit of, you know, you talk about this, I just don't want to change. I just wonder whether or not a lot of the solutions and a lot of the, the things that are being invented from a technology standpoint aren't human-centered enough. They're like technology for technology's sake. They're answering a question that maybe nobody really had. And that's kind of getting in the way of people actually really adopting and seeing the benefit. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I've kind of been on both sides of the coin is, you know, do you, do you provide more opportunities for people, for consumers, and, and get them engaged and understanding what's possible? Sometimes I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing. So, for example, if we were to say, you know, this is what Jaguar is doing. Let's go back to cars for a second. They're committing that by 2030, they will not be manufacturing internal combustion engines anymore. Everything will be electric. So if there's no more choice, then it's not about the technology that it is about which car is prettier than the other one and what are you going to use it for. Mm -hmm. So I would say the same thing. Why do any buildings need to be anything other than net zero energy or, or zero emissions? Then the homeowner, all they have to worry about is picking their granite countertop or paint colors, yeah. right? If you say to somebody, we have a house for you, it's this price point, and you can pick these features within the price point that you have. And I say to you, if you pick either granite countertops or net zero energy so that you won't have to pay utility bills every month, which one are you going to pick? And the net zero energy is all behind the walls. You can't physically see the difference. So if the home buyer is going to have a linoleum countertop, they're going to go for the granite and they're going to pay utility bills. So you have to start reducing the choice for the greater good of what it is we're trying to achieve. I'll have people argue against me on that, and I've had many debates about it, but I've been on both sides of trying to influence both the consumer and also the, the manufacturer, the developer, the, the professional sector. And I just think we're at a tipping point now where we can't allow choice to be at the sacrifice of the shiny object. I'll put it that way, right? And I think we've got to be really careful about what we're allowing consumers to, uh, to work with. You know, we've got to, we've got to give them, this is what you're getting. doesn't matter. Just go pick your granite countertop. That's your only choice, right? Yeah. I think that's really kind of, I think that's a very interesting point. Um, you know, you also mentioned that the, a lot of the efficiency stuff is kind of behind the walls, whereas the granite countertop, you can kind of see it. And I think that, I wonder if that's an opportunity you know, you think about tiny houses and eco houses, and, and I know I'm digressing for a second, where architects put a lot of effort and energy into the design so that you can see what's sustainable about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we don't do that, or I don't suspect that we do that other than maybe green roofs and putting a LEED certified plaque on the front of the building for people to really kind of fundamentally enjoy and understand the difference. And yeah. I wonder whether that's an opportunity from a design perspective for people to think about how to put 
the sustainability or the eco impact or whatever, yeah. a bit more front and center. Yeah. And I, you know what, to answer that question, I'm actually going to go back to something we said earlier and I was talking about you know, the, our lack and inability to celebrate successes mm-hmm. because we actually are doing a lot of what you're talking about. Um, even far back as 2005, um, at the time, I was the head of sustainability for the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority. The TRCA, if anybody knows the area, you know, they, they regulate uh, water, uh, watershed management down in Lake Ontario because it's a very low-lying floodplain. Toronto's growing. They're trying to manage natural spaces. Developers want the land, and there's always been a fight between the two of them. My job is to kind of come in and see if we can um, break that down a little bit and see if we can get more collaboration going on. And we did this amazing uh, national design competition called the Architect House. And this is actually physically built up at the Courtright Center just north of Toronto. And we did this in partnership with Build, with the Home Builders Association. So the Home Builders Association came in and we had 17 teams from across the country design the most green home for, you know, track house development. And then we had the winning um, um, submission and we did that with the design exchange in Toronto. I had this big fanfare, big award ceremony. And then we had the home builders come in and actually build the winners on site. Very, very ultra green, net zero energy, all of that. The builders get to learn what we're talking about. And now consumers get to walk through those homes and see what, a healthy indoor environment feels like. You know, kick the tires, the technologies like the solar panels and the uh, and the um, you know, all the different technologies we have in HVAC systems within the house. So that kind of demonstration models is happening. The problem is no one talks enough about them, so people are aware that, that kind of stuff is out there. There are amazing architects like uh, right now I'm working with uh, Paul Dowsett uh, of Sustainable, a great architectural firm that specifically focuses on retrofitting homes in Toronto to be net zero energy or zero emissions. And he's doing great work. He's got a bunch of homes that he's doing this. But again, how do you promote that to, so that people are aware that these things are happening? Yes, it's not nearly enough yet, but there's enough beacon examples that these things are happening. We've just got to figure out how to keep talking like you and I are now and keep getting this message out that there are places to go. There are architects and engineers to go see. Things are happening out there in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I really hope, though, that um, organizations make it easier for people to adopt. I mean, I won't go into the big story about when I tried to put solar panels on my on my roof. <laughs> Well, I think everybody's recovering from that uh, fit fiasco way back. But. Well, I mean, I guess maybe it's good that I didn't do it, but I remember I was approved for it because uh, I have lots of exposure on our roof and um, uh, it, it got turned down by um, uh, Hydro One because yeah. they didn't want to retrofit or do something to the tap yeah. on the house. It's like, okay. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, that died. So um, let me crank up my diesel generator. Um, so sorry, my hobby horse. Well, you're actually sweat a little bit because the stress I went through all that time. Exactly what you're talking about. I was actually involved in the entire FIT program in the province of Ontario. At the time, I was a special advisor to Magna. Okay. And everybody knows Magna manufactures car parts and does it very well. It's one of the best in the world. Um, but at the time, in 2008, that's when the economy was tanked. So they were trying to find a way to get their engineers working to new sectors. So we came up with the idea of creating this large utility scale, um, you know, 40, 50 feet in the air, this dual axis tracker system. So we take 50 panels and, and follow the sun and increase the solar gain of a panel um, immensely. And again, we had this great technology that we, that Magna put millions of dollars into. 
But to actually get those installed and, and, and people buy it, just it, the, the, the program itself was a problem. And sometimes the governments, they just need to set the standard and then get out of the way. Yeah. Let industry do what they do well once you set that groundwork, that even playing field. It doesn't matter where you put that bar. You can tell industry, look, our bar is carbon neutral. And if you don't do it, you're going to get penalized by this. If everybody is there and the level playing field is there, the industry will know how to respond. But right now, it's just kind of all over the place. And there's more, there's more friendly carrots and, and incentives than there are sticks to tell you to do something. Totally. Um, do you ever see the movie Apollo 13? Yep, it's been a while, but yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, no, it's one of my favorite films. But anyway, <laughs> um, the reason I bring it up is, you know, um, there's that great line, I think Tom Hanks says it, where, you know, we're talking about, like, how, how, how is it that we've managed to go to the moon? Yeah. And he said, we just decided so that well, we yeah. wanted to. And I wonder whether or not that's kind of the thing here. It's like if we all decide that it's important enough to us uh, as a species or as communities, as whatever, we'll find a way to do it, which leads me to sort of my, and we only have a few minutes left, but my last, maybe last question, what advice do you have for people who are watching the video right now? Um, you know, they're largely interested in sort of commercial real estate and, and building and that kind of stuff. How in the world can we speed this up? How do we speed up innovation and construction and in yeah. real estate? How do you, how do you do it? Well, I think, you know, it, it, it almost, by summarizing our talk to some degree, I think is the answer. I think that we, you know, anybody listening, recognize that knowing that and understanding that your interest in potentially doing something but not knowing what the return on investment is, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, look, I need to know what my return is if I was to do this. People feel like, oh, that's a bad word by saying that. I should do it because it's good for the planet. No, if we're gonna change economies, economies have to be on board. Yeah. And I think making sure that they understand there's nothing wrong with looking at that with their ROI mindset is one. Two, they, they have to understand that there is a lot of examples, there's a lot of education, there's a lot of people that have done this very well over the past 20 years that we can rely on to help with that. It's not cost prohibitive. This is the stuff that can be done with off the shelf. And then over time, you can improve by adding new technologies that you build trust in over time that's constructive. But start with off the shelf, just make it a system solution. And if you do that, and if you start showcasing that and telling people about it, not only will you find your ROI, you'll find the people that want what you're selling, you're gonna get recognized as a leader in that space. And that ROI is just as important. So the answer is not just do this and you'll get that. It's a system process that is, that is not full of ebbs and flows. It is go from one to the other. You are gonna get there and your company is gonna be better for that. And I think we have to be really cautious because we're at a very important time right now where the price of carbon is going to hit the marketplace. We're at the Supreme Court now in Canada for a price on carbon. And if you talk to the provinces, and I have and other people, everyone is very confident that a price on carbon is going to happen and it's going to be standard in Canada starting about $30 a metric ton. So when that happens, the price points of materials are going to start being impacted. And everybody then, that's our level playing field. It's gonna start happening. So we need people to understand to get ready. Don't push back and say, oh, this isn't gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's happening in Europe. UN is pushing it. Even the US uh, with Biden, if he wins, and he likely will, but that's just my guess, obviously, he's already has a, an amazing platform on climate change. 
And so I think we're going to see the U.S. taking leadership in that in the next number of years. This, the individual states already are, like New Jersey and New York and California. So don't think the world is not moving this way. In, in some aspects, Canada is behind and other aspects we're ahead. We've got to make sure that we understand we don't want to get fall, fall behind. And I encourage everybody just to really pay attention, find the right people that can help you with the solutions and help you out. There's a lot of consultants and people that get this stuff and allow your business to really change and, and emerge uh, into the next stage of, of its development. It's, it's going to be key for you. Awesome. I love that as an answer. It's like also just, you know, thinking about it from an off the shelf, there's stuff out there that can help right away. And it's interesting because up until this point, I was wondering whether it was a bit binary. It's like, I'm going to do it for the planet or I'm interested in profit. And it was very, it was very kind of like either one or the other, but I don't think people, uh, organizations should be embarrassed at all. Not at all. No. To think about well, what is the potential ROI? What is the ROI impact on this? Because it's not like a lot of people think as soon as I put in sustainable, blah, 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 that automatically means things are more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Not so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I also think that you, you have to realize that we have various sectors that take on different parts of this challenge. So if you're in the private sector, be proud of that because you're providing a good or service that people need and people want. You need to make sure that you're making money at that so you can continue to hire more people to provide more jobs, feed your family. Be proud of the fact that you need a return on investment because you know why? There are other groups and other sectors like non-government organizations and not-for-profits their job is to think tank it, to be concerned about the environment, to provide solutions. You have governments, their job is to create regulations and policy and then get out of the way. So if you're a private sector, don't think that you have to try and solve the planet. Not-for-profits are doing that. <laughs> we just have to realize we need to learn from that and figure out where we move forward and be proud and do it. You know? Awesome. So thank you so much. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, a hot topic of any description uh, before we sign off? I want to be... Uh, careful of your time also. Yeah, I think kind of one final thing, and, and you know, people always ask me kind of where, you know, I've been at this a long time, as you indicated at the beginning of the talk, you know, where is my brain now? And, and I think really it's, it's come down to really looking at, you know, getting on with things, but doing it from a cross-sector collaborative way and finding those right projects and helping those companies and people that really want to take that next big leap forward, right? And I just encourage everybody out there to think about that. Don't just think about the sector and the silo that you're in. Where can that leadership that you're doing, how can that impact others? And don't be afraid to go to a conference or something, hopefully after COVID, that is not within your wheelhouse, that is not within your understanding. And talk to people that you don't usually talk to. We tend to go to these different workshops and things where it's all the same type of people. And you know we need to get outside of that and try and figure out solutions with other people that have very good ideas uh, out there. And that's kind of where I'm focusing my time right now. So. Diversity of thought is key. Uh, I want to thank you so much for spending the hour with us and talking. It's a great topic. It's so interesting. Uh, I know personally, I learned a lot in, in prep and, and in talking with you and hopefully uh, people who watch the video um, have too. And I wish you the best of luck in, in the future and, and keep, you know, pontificating from your soapbox because it's really important. And I know you're passionate about that and I'm going to, you know, carry the torch as well. Awesome. Thanks for your help. It was a great interview. I had a really good time. Great. Thank you. Be well and, and stay safe. All right. Thanks. Cheers. Okay.